Here we go on a Monday night. Getting excited. Time for Iron Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Huge show on tap once again. And Ira, you know, I noticed something kind of interesting. A lot of national uh, radio shows are taking this week off using backups, things like that. This is not really a slow time in sports. We have plenty going on. <laughs> Oh, my God. I know. I mean, I think Colin Coward went to Europe. It seems like they all go to Europe. They're Italy, <laughs> these places. No, I was just – I love it. We have – we're in the middle of, the, of great playoffs between NBA and the NHL, which is tremendous. And then we had, of course, down here at the South Florida with the Formula One. This weekend we had big fights, Kentucky Derby. I mean, we're, we can't just keep going on and on and on. We could do six hours, but <laughs> unfortunately we only have one. We're glad you're tuned into us uh, for that. Coming up, Costi Kennedy joins us around 7.35, and this is – he's an extremely influential guy. You've seen him on TV. You've seen him all across the internet. Tell us about Costume. He has the number one sports book out called True about Jackie Robinson. He wrote the, a seminal book about Pete Rose. It's one of the reasons he wrote the book. People now think Rose should now be in the Hall of Fame based upon what he wrote in the book. He also wrote a book about Joe DiMaggio and the 56-game hitting streak. Um, both books were books of the year. This book probably will be the book of the year also. It's amazing to have we'll have three books that are books of the year. So I, he's been, of course, everywhere, every show, and I was we're pleased to have him on Iron Sports. Well, We'll, uh, we'll get to that here, like I said, about 7.35. Iron, you had a pretty busy week, and you didn't even have to fly. Where have you been? I was, <laughs> well, we in South Florida were able to get Formula One, and you know how much I love talking about Formula One, and I watch it, <laughs> and finally it was here, and was able to go on Friday and Saturday. Uh, what an experience. I mean, I've been everywhere at every sporting event. It's sort of like when you go to these events, everything is, you know, to have me, it was sort of like the Masters, because you had to learn from all my past experiences of going to sports on how to handle this, where to sit. This was hard. Uncharted waters. This is totally <laughs> uncharted waters. This is there's no charts on these waters at all because it's not like going to. A, I've been to the racetrack, the Daytona 500. I've been to the Homestead. You show up there, there's stands. You know where to sit. You have an idea. Well, in this type of place, there are seats. There are stands everywhere. There's a there's a start finish stands. There's a turn one stand. There's Marina Grandstand. There's this thing where the beach where the grandstands were. I mean, a total for like seventy thousand people and all these different stands. And then there's VIPs in the inner circles. But people, the mistake, the misconception. People have is nothing was in the uh, stadium. The yeah. Hard Rock had nothing. They weren't running through the field. They were not going through the stadium. It that was, would have been cool. Though. That would have been cool. The only thing you saw was when after the the race was over, they had to go from one side to the other. They actually went underneath the stadium. But short of that, everything was outside the stadium, and it's all going to be except for the garages torn down. Like in the next two weeks, this is like very much Honda Classic like where yeah. they build things up and then you're going to look and it's be gone. They had to repave the entire road. This is with expensive paving to make sure the cars. I mean, could go on that, and also where they went under some of the bridges, they actually they'll lower those parking lot because they had needed, so then the space between the road and the bridge had to be high enough so if cars fly up, nothing would happen. But they brought, to think, I walked there and it was like, oh my, how in the world does someone create all this? Because I was there a few months ago, a month ago, when I saw the start finish line in those stands, and that was only like one-tenth of the entire course. No, it, it's got to be just a, a massive feat and, and just a marvel of the engineering and design work that would have had to go in to pull something like this off in Miami. Three and a half mile course, and I mean, the big debate was why did they not put this downtown? I think after this was done, I, in my, I thought about a lot of things, so I was there. I said, boy, I think Miami might regret not putting this downtown Miami. This would have been really cool downtown Miami. And I think that Miami would probably, I think it, people would have upset, the congestion, this and this, but boy, they would have been amazing to have it there. And the neighbors that complained, I know that it was noisy. First of all, the cars, the Formula One cars are quiet. They're not loud. Like they aren't, like I put my headset, like heads, you know, earmuffs on, like a Daytona cars. I didn't really need it for that. Mm -hmm. But when the Porsches went around or when the Formula Three cars went around, those were loud. But everybody who, you know, 
the, a lot of the houses complained about the noise and everything. They were all, that's where everybody parked because this was all through the parking lots. How many other stadiums could actually have parking lots this big that you were able to do that? And it was all through the parking lot. So people had to park at all the homes that surround the area. You know, everyone's paying. It was pretty good though. I only paid like $30, 20, one day, 25, one day, $30 to Can't park. Can't be that. Can't be that. Whereas I looked online, they had a few spaces like at a parking lot where you, that even further away, there was like $500, like $1,000 and they bust you there. But uh, at like some high schools around the area. But no, it was great. I, I loved that aspect of just, and I where I park was great because you just, I, I literally got back to West Palm like an hour after the, after the thing. And um, you were in Miami uh, earlier in the week as well. Heat game Tuesday night. So yeah. that was, uh, that, so that was when the heat were looked like they were going to roll. Um, and now it's, uh, that happened. All knotted up. It wasn't a great weekend for South Florida sports. <laughs> and we'll of course talk more about that. We've also got two hockey games going on at the moment. And Ira's, a basketball game at 730. Yeah, Ira's uh, Pittsburgh uh, Penguins taking on my New York Rangers and also the local team, Florida Panthers taking on Washington pucks dropping any moment now. So Ira, I got to tell you, let's talk formula one first. I got to tell you, this is my favorite swag you've gotten from any event in the last like three years. I love the, the hat that you got. Love the t-shirt. Miami's known for style, and I think they hit it out of the park with these. Well, I mean, I think it was it was <coughs> no, it was amazing how the merchandise. I've been everywhere with merchandise. I masters hats for twenty eight dollars, good quality hats. This hat you see I'm wearing right now, fifty dollars, yeah. and this is cheap. If you want to buy a Ferrari <laughs> hat, a Red Bull hat, it's like eighty dollars, ninety dollars. There was a book bag. I was like, oh, that book bag for Ferrari is pretty cool. Three hundred bucks. Yeah, three hundred dollars. I, I couldn't believe it. And then the funny thing was, a woman was from McLaren was selling me, was talking about it, and she's like, where you know, talking this and that. And she ended up being, she's like an engineer from McLaren, like she's working at the concession booth. But and, as an engineer, she says, oh, this is we just get involved, we just pitch it and do what we can but it was tremendous to see all the different booths everything they're selling and then there were a lot of other like i would say fun things they had a pit they had an area where they'd have mclaren they had a car and you had to see how fast you could put the wheel had to take the wheels off and put them back on and that's that, actually and a really cool demo. that was and it was real it was a real lug nut real wheel real because i don't know the real car but it was whatever but it wasn't some fake little thing i thought that was cool they had other games out there they had every Every beer company or liquor company that sponsors had some sort of crazy little setup there. It was all for branding purposes, VIP purposes, uh, showing things. So I think that aspect was fun. I mean, the, having the beach and the yachts. People ask me, like, what's that water? Well, it's fake water. It's not on a beach. You're in the middle of a lot. There's no yeah. beach water. There's no <laughs> beach around there. But they made it look cool. I, I was really impressed at how it looked on television and also how when you're there, you know, it was hot. It was like 93 degrees. And there was a lot of things that didn't work. Like this whole idea about not letting people use cash when they're at a sports stadium. Please, can we end it? I mean, they, they, so the power broke down. So everyone's thirsty. They're passing out. They're lying on the ground. And there are all these booths that were selling water, selling Coke, selling everything. You can't buy a Pepsi. There was no Coca-Cola there. It's only Pepsi and only Red Bull. <laughs> but anyway, but the point is you couldn't, you, they, they wouldn't sell because they're their power law. So even though they're sitting with this, no, you couldn't no, use your money. So everyone's like, I can't. The lines, that, you know, the, one guy had power. So there's a big line forever to go through those places. It, it's crazy that in this day and age that that's how it, it's going, but it seems like that's the way it's getting are worse. Going. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, they go cashless. No, I want cash. I have cash. I want some water here. Can I? Like some guy <laughs> was trying. He was thirsty. I'll give you a hundred dollars for a bottle of water, and the guy wouldn't even take the hundred dollars. <laughs> Any other? You know, this is a mastic logistical feat for the people who put this together between F one and and Miami. Anything else you ran into that was like oh, this is interesting? It's their first time doing it. They really didn't know what they were getting into. Well, I do think that the bridges, that having the walk, the thing is that there was a, there were the key, I think the C 
seating was interesting, and I, I, I think I hit it right. The start finish line was the right place to go because, and as much as the tickets were about the same all around, but I liked it because I was closer to the to the race. And during the practices, they practice. They have two practices on Friday, two practice, one practice on Saturday, and then on, they have qualifying sa- Saturday for an hour. And the practice is only one hour. That's one hour. If there was an accident during practice, it's over. And then they have these other cars, the Porsches, everything going on while the practices are going on at that time. But it was fun to see like the cars out and the pictures. Like to me, this was the most challenging picture. I mean, this was like master style, like trying to get pictures. I mean, <laughs> it was hard because they're going 150 miles an hour, people standing up in your ways. And that's why I thought Fridays and Saturday was better because I think during the race on a, even the qualifying on end of the day on Saturday was harder to take those pictures because people are standing up, they're getting in your way. But I was, in, and I like looking into the garage, seeing them come out of the garage. It is the amount of people, when those Ferraris or Mercedes, there's 10 teams, two cars per team. When they come in, there's 20 people who jump on that car and they, they change the tires in a second. They go, they're not practicing with the other, the drunk, watching drunk people change the tires or whatever, <laughs> but they're actually doing that. And I think it was exciting to be in front of the pits and watching that. The only thing I didn't get was the VIP experience. I mean, that on Sunday when they were walking down, Martin Brindell was walking down and you had every celebrity in the world that's there. You might have seen these pictures. How about this one picture I saw on the internet with Brady? You have Lewis Hamilton, Brady, Jordan, and David Beckham in Good a picture. Company. Like, I mean, it's just every, superstars everywhere. And that was fun. And it was hard where I was, I mean, I was with the common people, I guess, but I had a great scene. But it was, it was just, it was that aspect of it, I think, was fun. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Don't forget to follow Ira all across social media at Ira on Sports. Great pictures from both the uh, Formula One event in Miami and from the Miami Heat games. Rangers score early. It is one nothing. about uh, three minutes so far into that game. Anything else you want to talk about with the warm-ups uh, or anything like that before we get into the race? Well, I just, the one thing I did think on TV, so on Sunday, because it's Mother's Day, I wanted to spend time with my mom and who was recovered from hip surgery today, so it was pretty interesting that she was, uh, she was, I watched the, got to watch the race with her yesterday on TV. She loves Formula One, so she's doing well, thank God. And, uh, but the, I, I thought it was interesting on Sunday with TV, Martin Brindell, usually when they're in Dubai or where they're in uh, some other countries, they, well, he walks in the pits and he's just interviewing like people that are like with the races. Like you would normally have, like you would not have someone go in the middle of a football game on the sidelines and rarely do you have like a zillion superstars. And that's usually what it is. There's no superstars. Yeah. Here, there was everybody. So he's walking in the pits and there's Venus Williams, Serena Williams. There he's trying to get Jordan we didn't see, but Beckham was there and he's walking. But then at first someone, he starts screaming, there's Patrick Mahomes. And it wasn't, he's someone in his ear probably said Patrick Mahomes. It was Pablo Bonchero yeah. of the <laughs> of Duke. And he's like, wait, he started asking questions. And then he realized it's not him. He goes, what's your name? <laughs> I thought that was funny. And then Venus wouldn't even give him the time of day. DJ Khalid talked to him. I thought that was funny. But I think that aspect. And Danica Patrick, if anyone gets a chance, she did this this promo before it started on TV. I thought it was the best promo. Like, So she's riding in a car down South Beach talking about the race and excitement. So that aspect I thought was really cool. I mean, this was cool. And this is and there was an article in the Orlando papers like, like where I'm interested. NASCAR Darlington, which William Byron ran, ran the exact same time at 3.30. I wonder what the ratings are going to be because you have the Netflix special where they're building these drivers up. I'm just intrigued to see Formula One seems to growing, growing. You have all these celebrities there. They're not there at the NASCAR races. Yeah. And you're starting to see more and more people watch it. These drivers, as much as the NASCAR race sometimes can be a lot funner to watch, there's less passing here in Formula One, but it seems like it's growing with more excitement. So let's talk about uh, what happened here. 
Well, just in qualifying, the Ferrari cars, Leclerc, Charles Leclerc, Carlos Seitz, they were one, two. Verstappen and Red Bull was three. It was, it was great after they finished their qualifying and then they go right there and they come out, they take pictures. And I was, I have, if you go on iRed Sports, I have amazing pictures right when they did the qualifying and how they just went to pose for pictures after that. But the race um, was really interesting. Verstappen was, was third from Red Bull and uh, he's in second place overall for the, he, actually now in second, but he, uh, passed Carlos Sainz to jump up to second for one of the Ferraris and then about the ninth lap he passed Leclerc uh, from Ferrari and then for the rest of the race he stayed in first place the entire time and it was not that we assumed that people would be passing more and it wasn't the passing that you would expect um, all the, the tires they start on soft medium or hard no one used really soft that much it was usually medium hard they start with medium and they all went to hard tires and George Russell Mercedes he was smart he said I'm going to stay out we'll see what happens and then rain almost came but rain didn't come but there was an accident and Lando Norris had a bad accident so that made all the cars slowed down so Russell was able to then to pit and then come out with another medium tire and that helped him because he didn't lose as much position and uh, Verstappen and the Ferrari stayed out and Hamilton stayed out and it was so funny because you their pits are this is where you when you're there and watch a race and you see what happens so Hamilton's crew came out and they brought these soft tires out and like he's gonna go to soft tires and they it was just a fake because they saw Verstappen's pit is right next to there and he had no intention of doing that mm -hmm. it was just sort of a but when their pits are right next next to each other and um, but it was like, my part of the, they started racing at the 48th lap, they go to 57, and then Leclerc was behind uh, Verstappen and getting closer, and you just kept it closer. Every lap he was getting closer and closer, and you were waiting for Leclerc to pass from Ferrari, to pass for Red Bull's Verstappen. He just couldn't do it, and Verstappen at the end came away and was, was, you know, was real strong. And Verstappen, Leclerc, and then Sainz, the other Ferrari, was third. Uh, the other Red Bull was fourth. And George Russell, his strategy paid off, became was in fifth, and Lewis Hamilton, who Mercedes had been dominating, he's won seven titles he's the superstar of all superstars he has been struggling this year but he finished sixth um which is you know, which be horrendous he said uh, we're okay this is better he's not really had a good year and uh but it was i we were also waiting for some of the other teams to do well some of these other drivers and because it's been for the last year verstappen and hamilton won almost every single race and their teams were one and two there's again two teams two cars for each team but this year some of the other teams have got in there mclaren ran well but they didn't run well at this race so you're starting with alfa romero was running better that one of the drivers ran well didn't do it so I think that's what you start you would hope from Formula One that more of these other teams every race somebody can win Anything else you want to talk about here, Formula One, before we one wrap One more, up? the ceremony afterwards. I thought they kept showing the statue of Marino, Dan Marino on the statue on the other side. They had the big whole ceremony where they do the national anthem, and then they have the, the spray, the champagne. And then Dan Marino himself came That's out. That's awesome. And then the drivers wore football helmets, and I thought that was cool. <laughs> they embraced it. If you watch on social media, that's the other thing they do so well on. I'm following all the Formula One. It is unbelievable how job. much everything, social media, they are as savvy as you can imagine. Now, next year, it's going to be an awesome, later this year, it's going to be in Austin. It's going to be in, in uh, Austin, Miami, and, and Las Vegas next year. I, I can see six or seven. Like, get these races out of Abu Dhabi, and they had one in Russia or whatever. Get, bring them more here. Like, I think that's good. To think that a few years ago, I was talking to my friend, he went to Detroit for a race and nobody was there. That's how uncool Formula One was. <laughs> and now it's like super hot and super cool. Yeah, I mean, when they did Nashville, I think it was last year. Was it two years ago they a did Nashville? A few years ago, yeah. Yeah, they, that was it. 
was bigger then. It took over the city a little bit. People were excited for it. I'm glad that they're building something here and, you know, kind of taking over our cities and fixing our roads at the same time. It's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel, 721 on the clock. Don't forget to follow Ira at Ira on Sports. Kostya Kennedy joins us in about 15 minutes or so. Let's switch over to the Kentucky Derby, Ira. I was telling some friends of mine the day before. You know, everyone's got their idea of what's going to happen in the Kentucky Derby. We talked to Brittany Yerton last week. She said she likes Zandon. And I said to my friends, this is the hardest race of the year to pick. And like, why? Well, it's 20 horses. Most of them have never run against each other. You just, there's nothing to base it on. I don't think anyone was expecting the result that we saw on Saturday in, in the run for the Roses. It was an, insane. Well, I left the track, the racetrack, <laughs> the uh, auto racetrack yeah. at, at Saturday, and I drove back, and I was like, where can I go watch the Derby? I was going to go to a, a sports bar. I'm like, wait a second, I'm next to Gulfstream. So I went into Gulfstream. I go, this would be cool to watch the race at Gulfstream yeah. at a racetrack. It would be bet, easy to bet the money. So I went to Gulfstream and watched it. When, when Rich Strike won, the race. You usually at the end of any of these races, people are screaming, they're yelling, they're this. It was silence, total silence. There were thousands of people at Gulfstream. That means nobody had, no, there was one guy that said, I won. You know, they were like, <laughs> nobody won. Nobody had an exacta, nobody had a trifecta, nobody had anything. Like, no, Rich Strike wasn't like, nobody there bet Rich Strike. He was waiting for one person to scream, hey, I won. Like, nothing. I mean, maybe that person was afraid they get attacked yeah. or something. <laughs> but it was unbelievable. I mean, the fact that Sonny Leone, the jockey who was unheard of, uh, Eric Reed, the trainer, unheard of, this horse was not entered in the race, was entered, didn't, didn't get in the race until Friday. Yeah, he wasn't going to be running <laughs> be running and it was only because D. Wayne Lucas had Ethereal Road Lucas pulled the horse because he said I'm never going to win from the 20th uh, pole 20th position so I'm not even going to run my race Rich Strike comes in people said well it was running well running great but it was so that's probably not a great thing to be run so fast you don't want to overtire your horse mm -hmm. so that was but it was it, and if you watch the race that overhead shot is unbelievable. It is, it, it was in the like last, but it was not just in last, like next to last place with to have 17. Like you see horses that are like, there's six horses in a race, they're in sixth place, they come and make a run or something like that. This was, this horse was in 17th position and it was like only like a half a mile to go and somehow, and, and it's, it's, if you had taken all the horses out, but just the leader and the 17th horse, you're never gonna, it, it would be imagined, the fact that the horse had to fight through navigate, seven, navigate yeah. 17 horses in a half a mile, like people were talking about at all they got in trouble I mean the rich strike went in the middle it seemed like there was nothing open and suddenly the rail opened up all the horses on the on the turn the far turn they went they drifted it was able to go to the rail but even when it went up to the rail it ran up to back behind another horse at that point when it cut to its right there were probably going to be other horses there got lucky there was no other horses there and then went and then went back to the rail and uh, Zandon was fighting with Epi, uh, Epi, Epicenter Epicenter and they didn't even probably see what I mean didn't the, see it coming the, when they were calling the rail the, uh, the 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 call of the race didn't even bring Rich Strike until the end. He goes, and Rich Strike just won the race. Like <laughs> they were going, Epicenter's in it. Epicenter's in it. And then, oh, by the way, Rich Strike just won. <laughs> yeah, it, it was truly a bizarre finish. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And it's just. I, I feel like we're going to hear some bad news this week. No, Something don't say just that. doesn't tell me. I don't know. I, I think Have it's you ever seen a horse though run that fast? Anybody, if you just go, you, you go YouTube, Google this, and watch it. I cannot. It looked like uh, uh, one of the Formula One cars. I, I The speed of the horse on that last like it would say a quarter of a mile I just when it was going through this like the other horses stopped running it, it, it doesn't even it's like someone it was a video game and this is like you just put, gave yourself boost power I yeah, mean it's like nitrous I have never could not believe how fast that was and I think the horse was bought a few months ago for $30,000 that was it and mm -hmm. uh, you know the other horses are bred and this and that and millions of dollars and this horse is it just 
I, Sonny Leone runs on the worst tracks in the in the country. The first time he's ever run in the race. You know, talk about experience. Think of all the thought that goes in this race. Yeah. Breeding, who the breeding was, this and that, the jockey, the trainer, this and that, but you know, all these things. Throw it out the window. And all this first time run, first trainer, first everything, and they end up winning the race. It's it was absolutely amazing. You know, congratulations to uh, to Rich Strike and the connections. Let's hope it holds up here. Let's um switch over to the NBA. We got a couple minutes here before we have to talk to Kostya Kennedy. Let's uh, talk about the game. You want to go to the game you were at, uh, was it last Tuesday? Well, we'll just go. We'll start the Miami series. I mean, really, it was the first two games. Miami dominated Philly 106-92. Remember, there's no Embiid for the for the Sixers. Um, it was 50-49 at the half. And I'm like, wow. And then in the second half, he just blew the Sixers out. Maxi had third. And the whole part of the, the two games in Philly was Harden was five for 13, 19 points. Maxi had 19 points. But there was no without Embiid. It was like they have no shot. I mean, Butler... They got 15 points here at 25. Bam, out of bio. Nobody was inside. They started DeAndre Jordan. He couldn't defend him. And uh, even though the Heat shot poorly, 9 for 36 from 3, Duncan Robinson, first streak of 256 games came to an end. But it was like they blew him out that game. And then game two, I was at that game also. Um, no Lowry, no Embiid. Uh, but Philly was up 60-52 at the half. But then... Uh, uh, Heat, uh, Heat just took the lead, went on a 10-0 run. It was like one of those games where at the second half we weren't even nervous about it. Uh, Harden had 16 at half and only ended with 20. And the thing I noticed from that game was Harden and Maxi could not stand each other. There was a point where Maxi was looking at Harden. Like Harden looked at Maxi to play defense and Maxi's like put his hands up and then he like, I don't want to do that. And then he went over to Rivers and complaining about Harden pointing at him. And when Harden was shooting free throws at the foul line that Maxi would not come over and not even slap everyone. All the other players would come up. He wouldn't even like give them a high five or a yeah. low five or whatever you just sent on the bench they never talked to each other they I couldn't believe I mean it was like they almost needed Embiid to come back to like calm everybody down but uh, it was again I thought I, I didn't then the, the report was Embiid is not playing in game three he's out facial fracture concussion he can't read his cell phone I mean they, they got fined for like $100,000 for putting out those reports because Embiid ended up playing like 35 minutes in the third game and uh, Philadelphia won 99-79 now I was coming back from Savage Saturday night, so I was, or Friday night, so I was coming Friday. back from uh, the race and I caught the second half. I was listening to it on the radio. I was, I was listening to the Philadelphia announcers broadcast the game, and they kept telling the score. And I'm like, they're wrong with the score. I mean, like 21 17 at the end of one, then it's 20 to 17, uh, the 17 points. I mean, the Heat only had 34 points in the whole first half. It was like one of the lowest scoring games at, at all. They shot seven for 30. I mean, Butler had 33 points, but they got blown out. I mean, it's not like the Philadelphia did anything well. Embiid was back and Maxi and Harden, but they ended up winning by 20. He only scored, you know, like, okay. Abysmal throw, offensive output. Throw, throw that game out. But then you go back then to last night uh, and then Philadelphia, you know, again, starts it. And this is where Harden, this is what made me nervous. Everyone keeps talking about James Harden. He's over, he's old, he's this, he's that. I'm like, man, I just saw a couple years ago, like this guy could score 30, 40, on a, average 35 a game. He hasn't scored 30 in four months. And he, he got hot there in the fourth quarter and that's where it happened. I mean, he was, he ended up with 31 points, nine assists, 17 boards, and just scored like 14 points in the fourth quarter. And the Heat, again, just could not shoot. And Butler was 40 points, 13 to 20 shooting, but no one else scored. And I think their big problem was, was uh, Kyle Lowry. He had zero points in game threes. He had six points in game four. He was clearly hurt. He's probably not going to play the next game, but I would not play him. I'd put Gabe Vincent in. I yeah. think that's been slowing them down. Struess has not been scoring. And there is a question. Bring in Duncan Robinson. I'm going to shoot some threes. They're not making any shots or whatever. And the fact is that Oladipo's playing and Hero's playing and Struess are like, where are you going to get Robinson minutes? Find something. See if somebody can shoot. I I, I just, I wish, I've been shocked by this game three and four. I think the, uh, the Heat sort of, they weren't ready, I guess, for MB 
need to start. But I, they just forget about Embiid. They just didn't shoot well, and I don't think they played Heat basketball. Uh, and the, otherwise, I mean, to lose one game by twenty and the other by eight, you know, is pretty bad. You know, I think Lowry was rumored to be out game three as well. And then as soon as Embiid was playing, Lowry's all of a sudden playing. I think that might have been a bad choice on their part. Let him sit out. He was obviously more of a detriment than a help. Yeah, I mean, he plays, he took 24 minutes and Vincent, I thought, was playing great. Vincent plays with a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And also that when Vincent is out, then you have Hero running the point and you have Adipo running the point. I think all three of them are better than an injured Lowry. And I just think that they were pushed Lowry in and it just, you know, they said even last night, you're watching the game, he's like, he's limping up the floor. Just, I really think look I'm nervous I think Heat are going to win the series but I am nervous about it you don't you don't want to be up 2-0 lose two games and yeah. now Embiid's back playing I'm more confident because there's two games in Miami if it was the other way around we might be thinking a little bit differently about this series so all of these series Ira so far Pretty darn interesting. Let's talk about the other one in the East here with Milwaukee and Boston. Well, last Sunday, Milwaukee won 101-89, and then Boston came back and, 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 and destroyed. I mean, Milwaukee had these one of these terrible games. I mean, we'd really call it a game. They were down by 25 at halftime. Giannis shot 11 for 27. Holiday had uh, 19 points. But the, the Bucks were shot 3 for 18. So then every, the, the narrative was Jason Tatum at 29, Brown at 30, and Grant Williams at 21. Uh, that's the Celtics defense. They're great. They can stop everybody. They're they're amazing. They're this, they're that. And I don't know. I like Jason Tatum a lot, but I, I said this before. Jalen Brown is more important. I, I mean, they're both super important, but if there's one, it's 1A, 1B. I just don't like the narrative that Tatum is this ridiculous superstar on this team. When Brown, I think there's times when I think Brown should have the ball rather than Tatum. And then that happened on game three. Milwaukee won 103-101. I mean, Boston Trump, 14 and 30, they made it a close game. And there was an issue at the end where Marcus Smart was fouled. Was he actually shooting a three? But they called it on the floor, so he potentially missed a foul shot. But Horford got the rebound, but it didn't go in in time. But Giannis had 42 points. I mean, Giannis is great. I mean, this again, and I think I, what I take away from this game is the Bucks win a lot of close games. Remember last year when they beat the Nets and those crazy games when LeBron is like, mm-hmm. it's one thing to be winning these close games because when well, you got lucky, it's also because you're good. You beat Phoenix in close games. You win these big games. Giannis steps his game up. Giannis goes, I learn from mistakes. I learn when I win when we lose. And Tatum only had 10 points, one board, and three assists. Now, if Jason Tatum is this elite top five player in the league, how in the world in a, in a game in the playoffs do you score 10 points, one board, and three assists when you're playing like 40 minutes? That's unheard of. 10, you you can yeah. score ten points, one board, and three assists. It's crazy. I appreciate the uh, vote of confidence. But I just I couldn't. That was so. I I again. I I like Milwaukee in the series. Middleton, and I think once Middleton comes back, I mean, really, I think they're. That's why. I, uh, I'm nervous for the Heat, even if we get by the Sixers. I, Milwaukee looks like to the team. But Boston's going to keep—this rest of the series is going to be exciting. I mean, Boston come back and win Game 4, but uh, but still, I, it, it, this was this was a big win for Milwaukee to come. And I think Middleton could be back any game now. I agree with you on the big win there because, like you said, they're so good at winning close games. I felt like Boston needed to steal Game 3 to keep themselves in a good position. The series didn't happen, and they're going to be down 2-1. to one. Phoenix and Dallas, Ira, you know, we were thinking this was going to be really quick, and so far it's not. Tied 2-2. Two to two. Well, it was hard. I, it was hard for me to watch the first two games because I, I sort of, those games start so fast. Like, the Heat game is over, and then the game, like, I walk out by the time I get out of the stadium, it's like in the middle of the second quarter, it seems like. But they weren't, you know, Dallas never uh, led. Phoenix was up by 21 in the first game, and Phoenix Phoenix just 121-114. I know the game got close at the end, but Luka was scoring like 45 points, 12 boards, eight assists for Dallas. And But the key is that Jalen Brunson seems to only play well when he has the ball in his hands. 
they got blown out that game. They lost by 20 the second game. Sort of like the Heat series. You're like, this is going to be a sweep. It's going to be over. They go back to Dallas, and wow. I mean, this is where Jason Kidd is going to get credit for coaching. Luka had 26 points, 13 boards, 9 assists. But this game, Brunson at 28. I think the key for this is look for Jalen Brunson. And if I'm Dallas, I'm like, let's get Jalen Brunson shooting early. If I'm Luka, get Jalen Brunson. Because if he's in at the high 20s and Luka scores the 30s, then that's what I think they really need. But just a... Paul, Chris Paul had a terrible first half, six turnovers. And then you're like, okay, 2-1, the Suns are going to, you know, the Suns are going to go. They're going to win game three. They're going to go back and win game five. The series will be over. And what, what do the Suns do in the, the game? They, uh, it, it, Chris Paul was terrible. I mean, he, he had five points, 23 minutes. They fouled him out of the game with eight minutes. They're complaining about the refs. I mean, the refs were terrible. The fouls were bad. But Dallas ended up winning the game. I mean, Luka was bad, a nine for 25 shooting. But they got points from Doris Finney-Smith and from Brunson and and uh, but it was like one of those weird things. Now that's seri- I never thought this series would be two two. No. And I, I of cri- all four series. So I criticize. I criticize uh, Phoenix. I thought Phoenix. I can't believe Phoenix is messing around with this. Like the, you got to win. This is a, this should have been a sweep. Dallas is a one man team really. And I I think Phoenix. Everything I've seen Phoenix play this year. You thought they learned their lesson. I, these are two bad losses for Phoenix. And now they have to win a game five. I mean they struggled with the, with the Pelicans a little bit. And like well I thought the Pelicans were great. But now they're struggling with the Mavericks. So we'll see what happens in game five. So, Ira, we saved the most controversial for last, Golden State and Memphis. It's 2-1 to one in favor of the Warriors. Well, I it's it's got, this series is the one that's over. I mean, it was over <laughs> because John Moran is hurt. And then they're claiming in the last game that John Moran got hurt because Jared um, Poole uh, hit his knee. I have never seen a more complaint. They were reaching for a ball. Poole just touched Morant's knee and I'm sure it hurt but they were just it wasn't like he fouled after him. some of the other fouls in this playoffs come on like and, and I agree with but I take the Memphis side like I, I was almost really take I'm showing them impartial I take Memphis's side on the fact that if Draymond Green pulls down Brandon Clark by the jersey I think he should have been suspended the next game because Dylan Brooks when he fouled Gary Payton Jr. in the second uh, in the second game from those Suns for the Warriors I thought that he was suspended for game three so if, I thought if they were going to suspend Dylan Brooks for a game they should have been Draymond for a game. But the series was one. I mean, John Morant, the first game was tremendous when he missed a shot at the end. And the second game, he scored 47. It was one of, the, one of those classic performances. He scored 47 points, eight boards, eight, eight assists. He scored the last 15 points of the game, uh, 18 points in the fourth quarter. He'd be the first NBA player to score his team's final 15 points in a playoff win since LeBron James scored 25 in game five of the Eastern Conference Finals against Detroit in 2007. 2007? 15 years ago. Yeah, that's, um, and I remember that game. I mean, and, uh, <laughs> Uh, that was just it was I mean at pool court and that was the game the game two Clay Thompson was awful five for nineteen but it was like well, that was it was this that was a great game 77, 77 to start the fourth and it was really Jaw and Curry Jaw and Curry the whole way down and then Clay they had a chance to win uh, or at least tie the game but Clay Thompson traveled with bad I can't believe they had called that travel but a travel at the end but then the Warriors came back they finally did something I don't feel like I'm smarter than Steve Kerr but. Kaminga started. They started him, and Kaminga had 19 points. I love Kaminga. He's 20 years old. I think he's going to be a superstar in this league, and uh, he played great, and that they just blew him out by 30. And without Morant playing the next game, I, how in the world are the, is, is Memphis going to beat uh, the Warriors? I think this series would be the one that's over. Ira, for the second year in a row, Nikola Jokic is your MVP of the NBA. You agree with that? I do. I think uh, this is why. I think it's close between Embiid and Giannis. Giannis sat a bunch of games out. Embiid played more games. But I'll say this. For everyone who says Embiid should be the MVP, Giannis went in to um, Philadelphia and won the game. And they were head-to-head. And Giannis dominated that game. And then 
about a month ago in the sea, about a month ago, and Jokic went and destroyed. I mean, Denver won that game. And that's when MB, that's when they had Harden and everything. And I'm like, okay, if it's this close and I'm watching these two players go out and Jokic outplayed Embiid, I'm giving it to Jokic. I, I just thought he's played great. His statistics are through the roof. I had him on my fantasy teams. I won fantasy leagues. You know, <laughs> nobody averages the 30 points a game and the, the rebounding and the assists and the three-point shooting and everything that he does. And he plays great on defense too, uh, even though in the playoffs he sometimes struggles or some situations. But um, I just think Jokic deserved it. So he's two-time, which is amazing because if you look at it, Kobe only won it once. And Shaq only won it once. Can you imagine Jokic has more than Kobe and Shaq combined? What is <laughs> oh, the tide? What does LeBron have? Two, two or three? Four. Four. Okay. Four. So LeBron has four. I mean, it's half as many. Curry as LeBron. has two. Yeah, Curry so has two. Yeah. Curry. <laughs> that's that's what so many. Giannis has two. So yeah. the, and think of the last four years, it's been Giannis with two, and then Jokic with two. And now it's going to be hard. It's 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 going to be really hard to win a three in a row. But Jokic is going to have to have this like absolutely. They'll have to be the number one team in the West. He's going to have to have another great year for him to win three in a row because I Bird won. Three, but he's the last player to ever won three three in a row. We'll talk hockey when we get back, but just a quick update: the Pan, uh, Penguins have tied it up one to one five minutes ago in the uh, first, and also the Washington Capitals leading the Panthers one to nothing seven minutes ago in the first. There, let's go to Costia Kennedy. This is Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports ninety five nine one zero six point nine. We're honored to have one of the top baseball authors alive, Costia Kennedy. Uh, he just wrote a book called True on Jackie Robinson. Uh, Kostya, thank you so much for coming on Ira on Sports. I really appreciate it. Great being on with you, Ira. So I was, I was thinking, how am I going to start this interview? And I, the question would be, you know, just go right into Jackie Robinson. But there's still a lot of li- my listeners that are younger who might not really like Jackie Robinson. Like, what was Jackie? So tell me what the significance of Jackie Robinson's integration of baseball like what is just a little bit in general about Jackie Robinson and why he is you know the seminal that people who are over the age of like 30 you know revere but maybe some of these young my younger listeners might not really know so much about him yeah, and it's a, it's a good, great place to start. I, I mean, I think that, look, obviously the headline, he was the first uh, African-American to play in the all-white major leagues, um, and that happened in 1947. Um, but w- w- at that time, to think about what that meant, <clears throat> at, at that time the the size and platform of baseball was – so tremendous. It was so much bigger than any sport, including the NFL, really has today. It was basically the only game in town. And it and it reached outside of the sport into other parts of society. And much of America, of course, at that time was not integrated, right? There were huge parts of America, including Florida, where you could not, uh, you know, blacks and whites couldn't even drink from the same water fountain, couldn't go to the same restaurants, couldn't do anything together. So the idea that he was playing in this milieu was itself just a remarkable thing. And the other second half of that, which is almost equally important, if he had just done that, would have been remarkable in itself. But the way he he took that mission, the way he played, not only that he was a good player, he was at his peak years the best player in baseball in 1949 and had several other years where he was among the top three to five best players in the game. Uh, And to do it with a a level of, of determination, grace, uh, athletic skill and uh, you know strong temperament. There, there are a few people who have have succeeded on that level in the history of our country, and it's a big reason why somebody like Martin Luther King, who was only 18 years old when Jackie Robinson came in, talked about the debt that he felt he owed Jackie Robinson uh, for what he had done. Yeah, I mean, we had 
Um, John Shea, who had a book about Willie Mays, working with Willie Mays on there. We've had an author who wrote a book on Oscar Charleston uh, from the Black Leagues, mm-hmm. who's one of, considered one of the greatest baseball players of all time. And it's just, I think it was like the idea that when Jack, you made, you hit the nail on the head that we look at football today as the sport. But in baseball those days, it, it was like, there was no other sport. There was horse racing, there was boxing, and then there's baseball, right. and there wasn't anything really else to capture, and everybody followed baseball. And in baseball, you're right, baseball back then was bigger than football is now, which is almost impossible for anyone to believe. Yeah, no, but there's no question that it was. And it was also, uh, you know, it was a time of more streamlined media, right? So you had people were just beginning to watch things on TV uh, at the start of of Robinson's career, a little more towards the end. So he would come out of the radio and and baseball was the only sport. I mean, even to this day, baseball is the best radio sport, right? And so in that time, it really lent itself. And you'd hear baseball games across the country. um, and, And in terms of its, you know, the president, and of course, throughout the first ball, they there were all kinds of veterans events and stuff associated around baseball because of the significance that it had, and because of its its sort of reach to all areas of society. Even though the major leagues at that point weren't even out in the West Coast, uh, there was still you would have the leagues, the Pacific Coast League, for example, which were still getting huge crowds, and baseball had a huge following um, and and so much love for baseball, even in places where they didn't have major league towns. And back in those times, in the 40s, the black leagues were extremely popular, extremely successful with these great players. And it is interesting. And the question everyone has, and you, you touch it on in your book, is why was Jackie Robinson the one chosen? It wasn't Jackie Robinson chosen, then other people. I mean, he was picked by Branch Rickey to be that first player. But there were other candidates who he actually could have chosen. Jackie Robinson, who was a star running back or star football player at UCLA, great athlete, the success at, at, in the black leagues. But at, and then he came to the major leagues and older. He wasn't a 19 or 20 year old. He was in his late 20s when he actually went into the major leagues. Yeah, it was a very careful um, decision, and, and certainly there, there are any number of uh, black players who, who could have succeeded and who did, of course, succeed afterwards, but it, but it was awfully tough to be the first. Um, and if there are other, you know, other players such as, say, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, Monty Irvin, those are three of the guys who are most often thought about who'd maybe accomplished even a little more in their, in their careers. Um, Josh Gibson was the great home run hitter. There was a lot of things that went into the selection and the you know, of Jackie Robinson and Robinson seizing the opportunity. Part of it was that, as you mentioned, he played sports in college as a running back and also lettered in basketball and track. Um, and he was around white players uh, quite a bit. He had very real familiarity with, with being in a milieu of predominantly white, if not all white, uh, teammates. He was actually pretty raw as a player, but one thing that he had, he'd only played about 45 games in, in, uh, for the Kansas City Monarchs in the Negro Leagues, and he hadn't played, he only played a year at UCLA, but he had tremendous speed and instinct on the bases. And that was a really key point, to have the guy come in who, he, Jackie Robinson was such a dynamic player. If you came in and you were a baseball fan or you were coming to your first game, he was the guy you wanted to watch. And not because he was a black player or a white player or anything. He was the most exciting player on the field. And that's something that even a guy as great as Josh Gibson, who could have certainly been a dominant home run hitter in the major leagues, you don't bring that every day as a home run hitter. It's not necessarily that excitement unless you're so off the charts like a, like a Babe Ruth. It, it's hard to bring that every day. So um, that was a big part also of why he was chosen. 
We just had Mother's Day, and we, it would be remiss not to mention you, it had a number of interviews with her, but Rachel Robinson, his wife, um, who was with Jackie from the beginning and went through everything in her, on her own marriage. She was a professor at Yale. She was uh, ran a nursing at, a, at the Connecticut Hospital. So, and then after his, after his passing, just you know, led the, uh, in terms of the memorials for, for him and to carry on the legacy of Jackie Robinson and all the things that he was doing good for the country and society. Um, but talk a little about Rachel's impact on Jackie's life and, and, and the struggle he had. Yeah, you, I mean, you articulated really well, Ira, what, what she did um, at the time and afterwards. And so she, she'll be 100 this summer. She's still with us. Uh, Robinson died in 1972, so she's living 50 years without him. That's, uh, that, that's a long time. Um, and she was, she was, as you mentioned, she was very intelligent, and she had uh, education was really important. She had a nursing degree. When Robinson was getting the opportunity, when they were in his career, she was there for him. She didn't... She didn't pursue her own career at that time. She recognized how big the opportunity was for them. And she was such a stabilizing force in his life. Uh, he was a very emotional guy. She was much calmer and soothing. Uh, and she was there in, in such a strong and important way for him. It was after his playing career that she went back in and she began to work in public health. As you mentioned, she had a job at Yale um, and really was, was a remarkable figure. And it's not an overstatement to say that Jackie would not have succeeded in the way he did without Rachel. Uh, and that goes from the very beginning. The first year I look at in my book is actually 1946, the year before breaking into the major leagues when Robinson is the only black player in the uh, international league, the top minor league, uh, playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers top team. And it was just him and Rachel uh, together with, with uh, in an absolutely unprecedented environment. Uh, and, and she was critical to, to what he was able to do. And then I just mentioned Branch Rickey a little bit. I was in the book. You noted that he was the one of the. It was just a, a forerunner and a lot of things. He was the one first GM to actually use scouting. He put on base percentage over batting average. He started the idea about platooning, and of course, some people might not like the shift. He, he started inventing that. But he was he was convinced that you had to integrate baseball. He, he had followed the black leagues and knew how great these players were and saw them compete. We you know there were a lot of competitions, exhibition games, and he thought that the time was now. So a little about why about Branch Rickey in terms of his just soul focus and saying we are going the Dodgers are going to bring in uh, an African-American player yeah I mean and and on so many levels and it wasn't just an African-American player he knew that these were talent a talent pool that he wanted to to tap and so not only was Robinson the first but the Dodgers consistently brought in um, African-American players in the year that followed guys like Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella and Joe Black and Jim Gilliam and and others Um, and it's part of what made them such a great team over those years, but they made they, they made uh, six World Series in ten years. Robinson was, I mean, Ricky was very principled. He was a Methodist and believed it was immoral to keep uh, for segregation and to keep black players out of the major leagues. He was also a businessman and knew that this was an opportunity to bring new people to the stadium. And he was also first and foremost a baseball man who knew that there was all this great great talent. Uh, not being allowed to play for his team, and he just wasn't going to stand for it. So when he was outvoted 15 to one uh, in the question of uh, by by the other baseball owners on the question of integrating baseball, he just said, "Well, I'm going to do it anyway," and and that's what he did. 
And then you really go into some detail in the book about his time in Montreal. And that was probably a great starting point for him. Not in America, sort of different. It was a French city, um, just a different place. And, and how, but how the fans just embraced Jackie and Rachel and, and just enjoyed it in that whole year. And you, you wrote in the book that people still, like years, 30, 40 years later, 50 years after the fact, really, uh, 60 years, talk about those times when, when, when Jackie was there and living in Montreal uh, and working for, it was the Montreal, I forget their last name of the, of the team. And they won the Little League, they won the International World Series that year too yeah the montreal royals and, and it leaves such a just today getting a text from people who come across the book and, and remember the legacy of that or in some cases remember um people in the older generation remember seeing him and i was i was fortunate enough to speak to several people who had seen robinson play who had gone to the royals it was a big deal in those days uh, i spoke to people both in the black community and in the white community uh who, who remember him playing there it, it was a, a really special environment. You know, there wasn't the black-white divide in Canada. That there was certainly racism, and it wasn't uh, equal footing, but it had nothing like the the, the sort of uh, harshness and the, and the strength of divide that there was in from in much of the United States. The tension in the United, in in Canada was much more, and certainly in Montreal, on sort of French English divide, religious divide. So Robinson was able to have a place where he could play and be generally supported. The crowd loved him there, um, and so did his, his neighbors. Um, they lived in a French-speaking neighborhood, uh, Caucasian French-speaking neighborhood, and they did not speak French, Rachel and, and uh, Jackie. So it was a time for them to just sort of get acclimated to this life of being an enormous celebrity and having a lot on his shoulders, uh, but also in a, in a generally friendly environment. And also, they it didn't rush him up. You mentioned in the book that he could have been uh, moved up to the Dodgers into 46, but they waited because they, they thought Branch Rickey thought it was better to have a full year under his belt before they came up to the majors. Because when he came up, he didn't want to fail, but he actually was the Rookie of the Year in 47. And by 49, he was the MVP, and he was the best player in baseball and those things. And I think that his success was really important. But also, you know, he was a great player, worked hard, and was able to make it successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he, there was no. We, we tend to think of history, you know, not just in this case, but in general, there's some the ring of inevitability to it. Like it happened that way, so it had to happen that way. Well, it didn't. There, were, there was any op, any number of opportunities for Robinson to to fail or to get hurt. Uh, nobody was hit with a pitch more than Robinson was during his first two years in the majors. He was spiked on the bases. He was he was also just playing more baseball and more more regularly than he ever had in his life. His body was taking a toll. Uh, so he could have gotten hurt. He could have not done as well as as uh, people thought he would have. Um, but he did. He he absolutely he absolutely met the t- the task in every in every sense. And then you mentioned in the books, you go through about it, the cities, even in St. Louis, I was surprised, where like he would not stay with the team. He wasn't permitted to stay with the team at the hotels. I was surprised that the Dodgers wouldn't move to a hotel where everybody could stay at. But it was like, here here he is, the most popular player on the team, the one everyone's going to watch, who's the MVP of the game, and he can't stay at the same hotel or at the same restaurants as the rest of his teammates, which seems ridiculous. No, it's, it's an awful thing. And, and, you know, listen, for the most part, for the overwhelming most part, the Dodger uh, Dodger teammates, and especially after the very, very beginning, were completely supportive um, and, and behind Jackie and, and embraced his, his mission. That said, they would get to St. Louis, and Robinson, or later, you know, Newcomb or Campanello is up, they'd be on the bus with the same team that they'd been traveling with and winning games with and in the locker room with, and the bus would stop uh, in one part of town, and the black players would get off the bus and go to their hotel, and then the bus would drive away to the uh, 
uh, Chase Hotel where the rest of the team stayed, and the teammates just stayed on the bus and watched them leave, you know, and it, it, it's something that really stayed with, with uh, like Don Newcomb would talk about it quite a bit, um, and, and Robinson certainly he couldn't miss it. He noticed what was happening, uh, and, and those, those events happened, it was finally it was Robinson who integrated the Chase Hotel, who, who worked on them, the meeting management there, and said, listen, I'm going to stay, we want to stay here, and, uh, and he came and stayed there, and, and eventually, uh, obviously, uh, that opened the door to other African-Americans staying at that hotel and then staying at hotels throughout that city as, as well as many others, of course. And you mentioned in the book in those times, I mean, it's a shame that he did come home when he was older, so he didn't have the longest, he had a, what, a nine-year career, not a longer career in terms of his uh, overall like, overall being able to make an impact because it just you know came in as a, at a later age. But at, for a good four or five-year period of time, he was the best player in baseball and the most, you say, the most famous person in the world. Uh, he was incredible. He's certainly the most famous athlete in the world, without without question. I mean, um, you know, Joe Lewis was a really well known athlete too. Uh, but among among athletes at that time, um, there was you know he was just so so well known and followed, and what he did was was chronicled. You, know, you talk about his career. So ten seasons. The first two were very good. He wins Rookie of the Year. Then he has another very strong season after that. And then you go about forty nine to about nineteen fifty four, um, where he just really has. You know, four or five, about five great, great seasons, Hall of Fame caliber, statistic, everything um, type of seasons. And then he, in the back end, he has kind of a poor season in 55, rebounds of a very strong season in 1956 as well. So he, he, it was a short career. You know, as you said earlier, he came up uh, because of segregation and because of the, um, because of the war, he didn't get a start until. 28 in the, in the major league. Uh, so his time was short, but he certainly made the most of it. And then you mentioned, you know, the Dodgers and the Yankees, and it was sort of probably painful because the Yankees, I was surprised they didn't integrate till six years after the Giants and the Dodgers did, which didn't now, which is, you know, just surprising in terms of the Yankees and their failure to integrate. But the point is, uh, that they kept losing. The Dodgers kept losing. It was almost like the Lakers and the Celtics. They kept losing to the Yankees in the World Series. They won in 55, but Robinson didn't even play in Game 7. He was on the bench for that game and then came back in Game, and then they played in, in Game you know, 56 when they lost in seven games. Yeah, so that was the, you know, people, it's, it's almost like the Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl or something like that in those years. You know, they, the Dodgers made the World Series six times in ten years, and the fact that they were most often beaten by the Yankees is not, you know, it's not some great shame. They, they, they didn't win the final series. A, couple, a few of them went to Game 7. Uh, they, the Dodgers were a great, great team in that era. In 1955, um, that was Robinson's w- worst season, and he was, didn't, wasn't getting along great with the manager, Walt Alton. And in Game 7 of that 55 World Series, it's the only game that Robinson did not play in, the only World Series game that Robinson did not play in in his entire career. Um, Austin decided to play Don Hoke at third base. I don't think Robinson ever forgave him for that. Even though he wasn't at his great, at his best, Robinson, that was the series where he stole home. Um, he was still a useful player, and it's not as if Don Hoke was, you know, Pie trainer. He was he was a good solid player, but uh, Robinson wished he could have played that game. And I think it was part of what the sort of chip on his shoulder that Robinson had to come back in '56 and have really a very very good season. Not quite a peak Hall of Fame type season, but a, but a very strong season. Um, and then you know excel in that year's World Series in '56. Oh, and you mentioned in '56 in, in Game Six he had the game winning hit in the tenth inning, and they got in Game Seven they have Don Newcomb who was the National League MVP on the mound. You think okay the Dodgers are going to 
win, and then he they lose nine nothing in his final game, and uh, and then he went on a tour. He said to Japan, and then just quickly re- decided to retire. Uh, uh, you know, people were pretty surprised that no, he was traded. Actually, the Dodgers, the Mali traded him to the Giants, but he had already decided that he was going to retire from the game. Yeah, so his his season ended as you said. His last hit in that game six um, was was the final hit, uh, game winning hit in the tenth inning, and the final hit of Robinson's career. And he he knew at that time, Ira, that his body was was wearing out, that he wasn't going to be able to come back. Um, and and I will say that later on, he never once looked back and expressed, "Oh, I wish I'd stayed and played a little longer, uh, squeezed a little more out of it." Um, he he was ready to ready to go on. He got a, a job offer. He'd been looking. Looking around for a while for ways to, for something he could do after baseball, he got a job offer from Chock Full of Nuts, um, which paid him just exactly the same as what he was making at the Dodgers. Um, he also had an opportunity to do some work for the NAACP, so it was a chance for him to get involved in the movement a little more directly. And so he'd made that decision to go there, and it was only after he'd made that decision but had not yet announced it that he was traded to the Giants, and then he ended up never, never reporting to the Giants and just going to his his job in New York City as a VP of a, of a corporation. And then you mentioned almost for uh, 15 years he stayed out of baseball. He didn't go into baseball. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't, a, wasn't involved in anything. And, but he, it was a, a mission of his, really, even in 72 when he first went, went back in. He says, look, I want to see African-American managers. I want to see African-American coaches. It's important. But he spent those 15 years, as you said, in being working, but also advanced. He was on the boards of the NAACP. He gave, I couldn't believe how many speeches he was giving, and he wrote newspaper columns, and he worked with Martin Luther King, and he really advocated for racial relations in the country. Yes, he did. So that was a big part of what he did in those years. You know, when he initially left the game, he was kind of hoping he might get an opportunity to coach or manage, but that didn't come. And as time went on, uh, two things. He he saw that a lot, there weren't there wasn't much advancement for blacks in in Major League Baseball at all. Um, and then he also, at one point, he said, you know he felt lucky that he hadn't stayed in baseball because it allowed him to do all these different things. And he was very active. He worked with Dr. King. Uh, specifically, he had one project rebuilding some burned churches in Georgia. He led, uh, Robinson led the delegate from Connecticut to the dream speech in Washington, D.C., and then spoke with Martin Luther King on the dais right before the speech. Uh, he, as he said, he had his columns. He was very public in, in his uh, opinions, but he also worked, you know, sort of on the ground. He was really interested in economic empowerment, so they started an all-black an all-black uh, bank in uh, Harlem, the Freedom National Bank. He started a low-income housing construction company. He was just in, super involved, um, and and he finally got back into baseball in that last year of his life in 1972, and that led him to some appearances at Dodger Stadium that were really pretty moving, and as well as uh, that appearance in the World Series uh, just nine days before he died. And then you talked about the his funeral and how Jesse Jackson did the eulogy, but the amount of every... I mean, every star athlete you could have mentioned in that book that was alive at the time was there at this funeral. It was politicians and athletes and everything at that at the untimely funeral. You know, it's interesting because that's absolutely true. The, there was there was the sort of a who's who of people in in the public arena who were there. But it gets back to a little bit about what we said in the beginning of uh, talking about the younger people who may not know that much about Robinson or may not have appreciated him as much. At that funeral, uh, Hank Aaron was there, and, and Aaron had overlapped with um, Robinson, so he was younger than Robinson, of course, but they overlapped by a couple of years in the end. And he made a comment that, you know, basically all, uh, uh, there were many players there from Robinson's time, but he was surprised at how few of the young players had come. 
And I think even then it was a little bit of a disappointment that maybe were people forgetting already in, in the early 70s what Robinson and other people had gone through just recently, you know, 20 years before and less and less, uh, to get to get uh, baseball where it was. Um, so, so there was that aspect to it, but he, you know, it was an incredible funeral that, um, you know, thousands attended and, and sort of, a, it was one of those things where the nation stood still for a minute and sort of uh, held its collective breath and, and, and recognized what Robinson had done and been. Well, Kasia, I really appreciate you coming on and talking about uh, your book, True. I know it's doing really, really well. I've had two other seminal books of one book of the year. I wrote a book on 56 on Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak and also on Pete Rose. So that have had such an impact. And I think this True book is going to have that same imp- impact as those other two books. Well, thank you so much. I, I'm very, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And it's great to be on with you after some time. And um, yeah, I, I appreciate your good words. Thank you so much, Kasia, for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Great stuff there from Costa Kennedy. This is Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's talk a little hockey, Ira. And we spoke with Randy Moeller last week about how the East was the first time ever that every team that made the playoffs scored 100 points. There was not going to be any easy matches. And, of course, going into tonight, we have two series tied at two games apiece and also uh, two games at 2-1. to one. Right now, they're tied up in Washington with Florida 1-1 to one, and the Rangers and Pittsburgh tied also 1-1. to one. It's been dogfights. Most of these series are going to go 7. Any takeaways from this so far? I mean, I know that you've been loving the Penguins here a little bit, as you should, because they look really good in two games. What? They're playing with the third string goalie who yeah. was it was it was triple over time I stayed up and watched that whole whole game and then oh, me too and uh, <laughs> they he they said that he was like they said that between the sec he was the first goalie in the history of the NHL to be in to win a game uh, after two periods that they were because uh, their second goalie got hurt mm-hmm. and the first goalie was hurt going into the game and he said he had uh, spicy pork and broccoli in between yeah. the second <laughs> and third or the first and second periods and so that's you know what he used <laughs> and, and, and like he had only two starts all. Year and he's then, an AHL guy. He's a minor leaguer when it comes down to and it. it. And it's just, it's like, it's literally, it's like, uh, think of a baseball team saying, okay, now we're in the World Series. We're going to have to use our entire minor league pitching staff now to win a World Series, or mm-hmm. or we're going to have to bring a guy up from a basketball team who plays in a G League team. It's it's simply remarkable what Demin is doing uh, in, in in net. And, and, and I think the Rangers, I think it's almost the Rangers now are pressing because they're like, we're playing against this goalie that's the 20th string guy, and, and it, it's just amazing. You're right, though. I, I think the Rangers have been taking shots they might not take if it was against Tristan Jari, you know, or some kind of starter. They've been taking chances more than they should, thinking this guy's going to let it through, but he's been a rock so far. So good for them. The only series that's really wrapped up in the entire uh, uh, NHL postseason so far, Colorado's up 3 nothing over Nashville. We kind of saw that one coming, but... For the most part, everything's really close, and I think most of these will go seven. Right, and then the whole Florida series is that again you win. We talked about this with the, you win the Presidents Cup. Now the longer a series goes, the more pressure you feel. The yeah. more like, wow, I should wrap this up. Washington's in there, and you have a guy like a Vetchin who is uh, the team is rallying around. So that's where the extra pressure. Just it seems like if you're a higher seed, the longer a series go, the just more and more pressure gets on you. And that Presidents Trophy is always a burden that you've got to go out there and score goals. And they they averaged over six goals a game this year, and they're just not doing it so far in the playoffs. So. Saturday night, I got to watch some MMA. Really impressed with the title fight, Ira. This was a good one. 
it wasn't really a title fight. It was a half a title fight yeah. because Charles Oliveira was a lightweight champion of the world. He was just to weigh 155 pounds. He came in at 155 and a half and he couldn't even lose a half a pound. So you talk <laughs> about losing weight. He Here's one of the greatest athletes in the world. He could not lose a half a pound. So they stripped him of the title, but he was going against Justin Gaethje and they said, okay, Gaethje can win the title if he beats Oliveira, but if Oliveira wins, he's not going to have the title. It's the first time it's ever happened in UFC. And the, you're watching and you're like, what is going to happen in this match? Like, is Oliveira going to be so depressed that they took it away? And I love Gaethje. I think Gaethje's a great fighter. He only really loses to, to Khabib. It's the only fights mm-hmm. he ever lost to. And you're waiting for Gaethje to come in there and just dominate this fight. And it came out, and they were just pounding each other. It was a great they three minutes. They went for it. Yeah. And each one, I'm like, forget it. It's not going five rounds. Like, it was, you saw for the first, like, 30 seconds, like, this is not going more than two rounds. Yeah. And they were pounding each other. And then Oliveira punched Gaethje, got him on the ground, and then uh, did a real naked, was able to submit him and actually put him to sleep, which yeah. is a great ending. He lasted about 20. 20 seconds in the rear naked too. It shows how much they both wanted this fight. It was interesting watching Gaethje let Oliveira up. Like he, I just don't want to go to the ground with you. I'll knock you down, but I'm going to let you back up because I did it know twice. I can't. He let him. Yeah. He let him up twice, and Oliveira was trying to say, "Come down and let's wrestle." He wouldn't do it. <laughs> but then when he was hurt, that's when Oliveira then was able to take him and then and submitted him. It was exciting. It's one of those things where oh, it was only a three minute. Three minute was great. That was three minutes of action. That's all I needed. Considering the, the, yeah, the fight before was 25 minutes of no action. Carla Esparaz and Rose. Namajus, Rose Namajus was the champion, and it was probably one of the most boring fights I think in the history of it. Yeah, Dana White was not happy with that. They weren't even hitting each other, and Rose, it was like one of those things where they just said, "You don't deserve to be the champion if you want to come out there and not do anything." And uh, Carla was, they said, she doesn't want to get hurt because she's getting married in a week. And I'm like, are they making not good reasons? Why are they putting this as the second fight of you know that was the co-main event compared to that? I just that was embarrassing. But the Chandler fight before when Michael Chandler uh, knocked out Tony Ferguson, another good fight with a kick that just is a total kick and now both it's so funny Oliveira and Chandler when they're after the fight the first thing they say is who do you want to fight they go oh Conor McGregor Conor McGregor that's all it is like you know everybody wants to fight Conor because they don't think Conor's any good and they know he's a big payday <laughs> what about boxing uh, wow and I give us credit because we had Kelly Pavlik on Kelly Pavlik went up in weight from middleweight to light heavyweight when he fought uh, Bernard Hopkins and I and he's always experienced we had him on two weeks ago and he said this Dimitri Bivol who nobody's ever heard of who's the light heavyweight champion he's going to give uh, Canelo Alvarez a lot of problems so he didn't say he's going to win he's going to give him a lot of problems and Canelo who's a 4-1 to favorite in the fight ended up losing the fight and I got to give I, look, this hurts Canella. It's not good to lose a fight. But look, he commands the 168 pounds. He's beat everybody. He goes up in weight. This, he's fighting a really good fighter. And, it, and the weight and the height mattered. It's his first defeat since 2013 when he lost to Mayweather. Now he's going to have a rematch with him. And uh, so I give Canella credit for, you know, this is a real fighter. It's a real fight. He wants. It's not like Mayweather saying, oh, I'll fight people mm-hmm. and I'll just win. And he fights two, three times a year. So, so he's actually fighting. And uh, so I give him credit for actually taking the fight. I'm looking for the, forward to the rematch. But Bivol, but that's where power said, look, it's hard. There's some weight, you, the lower weight you can go up, but these higher, heavier weights, it's hard to jump up there. He said against a really good fighter, that's where the problem comes in, and that's what happened. Let's switch to golf here, Ira, and three years ago, Max Homo was ranked outside the one top 1,000 in the world. <laughs> now he's got four wins on the PGA Tour. Max Homo making a name for himself. He's the best follow on Twitter if you're a golf fan. Nice win here. Keegan Bradley, Jupiter resident, led going into Sunday, I believe, and then uh, Max closed it out in bad conditions. Well, the weather was rainy the entire weekend. 
weekend. You're just waiting for Max Homa. To, he is in his four wins on the tour, has done nothing, no top tens at any major. You're just waiting for him to somehow make a move in the major uh, because he really is yet to contend. What about um, everyone's talking about the live tour and what's going to go on with this? So, what do you think? Well, it's funny is that the Rory and these other golfers said, and Dave Monham said, oh, the live tour is dead after Phil Mickelson made his comments. But 80 pros applied. Um, their first one is in a couple weeks in England and they have to ask for waivers. And the issue is some of the big names, now the names, now we're not getting the Justin Thomas and the Bryce Deer show, but you got Sergio Garcia, who was heard talking. He was like, can't wait to quit this tour yeah. when they didn't give him enough time to find his ball, which was totally wrong. Like you saw that where he got there and he goes, your time is up. And he goes, I just walked over the bridge. I mean, you hear, <laughs> and the funny thing is you see Bryce and take forever to yeah. look for things. And then and the guy just said, oh, your time is up. And they, they admitted later that they were wrong. And then Lee Westwood, Henrik Stenson, Ian Poulter. I mean, the first place in their tournament in England is, is $4 million. Last place is 125000 These golfers, if you're in your 40s, you're, this is great. And also, we talked about this. Uh, younger players that aren't on the Pro Tour who don't have a pro card. Will Zalatoris. Uh, Not that the, he's going to go, but the fact that guys <laughs> like that are don't have a PGA Tour card, why wouldn't I go make an easy 125 minimum? Or go and or earn a few million dollars, put that on your sponsors, get famous, and then use that to then pay for all the trainers and the coaches and all these other mm. things that you have to have. And remember, you're not, they don't have to get permit, they don't have to get a waiver. They're not on a tour, so they don't have to get a waiver to play in this. So I, look, the, everyone thought the Live Tour was dead. I think when you're throwing around money, and then as Lee Westwood said, look, I'm an independent contractor. I'm here to make money. Like, yeah. that's my job. Like, I, it's nice, the PGA Tour and stuff like that, but I'm here to, to, to whoever's going to pay me the most to play golf. That's what I'm going to do. What's up next for golf? I have a feeling we might see a Tiger Woods site. Well, Byron Nelson this week and then the PGA Championship in Tulsa and uh, that's the one Phil won last year and this is going to be exciting to see what and everyone's been playing supposedly what the rumor was Scheffler went out there and shot a huge uh, scorching round the other day and uh, boy, what if Scheffler wins uh, after this great year wins Masters and PGA then people are talking about Grand Slam and all this other stuff so being number one in the world but no, anything Tiger's involved in so in two weeks we'll have a you know, the PGA Championship. Excited for that. Let's wrap it up with some tennis. Well, we've been waiting for... Uh uh, the next great tennis player. And there's been so many names out there. And Carlos Alcaraz... You said uh, it a few weeks ago. He he had probably the best three days. He beat Nadal in three sets. Then he beat Djokovic in three sets. This is in uh, Madrid. And then he beat Zarev, 6-3, 6-1. So those are the one... No those, slouches. He beat one, three, and four. And two are the all-time best players of all time. Now, I know on clay, um, but it's just... He's 19 years old. And I think it's more like... I'm here, I'm going to be number one. Because you look at Joker's 34, uh, Nadal's 35, Medov's 26, Titsubas is 23, he's 19. It's it's starting to have the feel that this is the next great person. Now, I, he has everything going right. He's a Nadal protege and thought he'd be great on clay. But now he won the Miami at the Harcourts. We saw him in Miami, how well he played there. We'll see what happens at French Open and then Wimbledon. I, he's looking like that the next great player could be here and it could be Carlos Alcaraz. Ira, what are you doing this week? Uh, uh, Miami Heat tomorrow night, Miami and then we'll see. And I hope not. There will be, but it will be a game seven on Sunday. So we'd have we'd have Miami tomorrow night, and they would play game seven against the Sixers on Sunday. And I hope I don't have because I want the Heat to win this out because they gotta get ready. They play game seven, and they have to play the Bucks and say the Bucks. They need to be rested for them. I agree with you completely. Thank you so much for Costa Kennedy for stopping by on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.